When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Why am I with Seabus Super? Because I'm a builder and they take care of me. Well, I had an accident on the work site and they helped me out, no worries. Yeah, they helped me out real fast. Mate, they just get me. Because they are for all of us. Seabus, for all of us. To consider if Seabus is right for you, visit seabussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the Final Word Cricket Podcast, weekend edition with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Hello, Jeff. We're back for another encore uh, interview edition, actually, I should say, because we've got Kate Cross, who we spoke to at Hove last year during the Women's Ashes, and we loved her company so much uh, on that occasion, we thought we'd roll it out for a second time. Almost almost this time last year, it would be, it would be perilously close mm. to a year ago. So if you haven't heard this chat we highly recommend it that's why we've put it on the show again if we didn't want you to listen to it that would be weird be a strange way to go about it Uh, kind of reverse psychology (laughs) to make you not listen to it by putting it on it wouldn't work that way but we we partly wanted to put it up because we've been doing this work with lords taverners recently and they've got a a really strong emphasis on mental health and looking after people's mental health and and that was something we spoke to in, in some depth with kate she was a wonderful guest in uh, opening up about that so we think those two things link together and uh, it, it's a really worthwhile chat to listen to if you're somebody who's going through issues like that 
Yeah, I agree, and that'll be an emphasis of a couple of our weekend editions in the next few weeks as we continue to partner with Lords Taverners more about them a little bit later on. Of course, Jeff, there's a test match taking place as we record. It's lunch on Friday at Old Trafford. So we've just watched Dom Sibley bring up one of the slowest hundreds in uh, in modern times for <laughs> England. I think he faced 314 balls when he brought up three figures. But in saying that, at this lunch break, Ben Stokes is on 99 from about 250-odd balls. So it's, it's that kind of test match and we'll obviously go through that in, in great depth next week but the last time I think Jeff we were doing this uh, podcast or recording a final word episode during a test England lost four or five wickets in a hurry and, and lost a <laughs> test match but this time it'll be in the lunch interval yeah um, I was just slightly distracted because I can hear Winnie in absolute full voice in the background she's giving it the big ones <laughs> and I, I hope she's coming through on your mic yeah it, it will usually I can't hear her because I've got the big headphones on but I can hear her today she's meant to be going for a and that, but evidently, and that has been uh, well. Uh, she's not there yet, so she she'll be going for a nap shortly. And that, that but yeah, she's in uh, great spirits at the moment, Winnie. Uh, she's just finished. Well, I wouldn't say finished. She's a couple of weeks into her sleep training, which I won't bore you with what that means exactly. But um, it's full on, mm. uh, and she's handling it really well. So uh, she's a good little girl. Um, we are going to delve deep into the annals of cricket history today before we get to Kate Cross because we've been balancing the Nerd Pledge game that we do on the other show earlier in the week and because we've got cricket to deal with now and all the rest of it so there'll be a little bit less on that show and a little bit more on this one but I didn't realise how detailed it was going to get until I started doing the digging on these numbers this week and then I gather that Adam's been doing a similar amount so I think we're going to have a pretty substantial walk down cricket's memory lane before we get to Kate. You can skip ahead if that's not your bag but uh, I think stay with us because there'll be some, some interesting tales coming up in the next uh, 20 to 30 minutes yeah i think that when we i think i said this in the weekend show last week but when we nerd pledge used to be kind of a, a 10 or 15 minute spot it was almost a an acknowledgement and a thank you to those of you who've been so kind to support the show um, but as we've kind of navigated our way through lockdown and now the second lockdown in melbourne and all the time we had here in london with with doors closed uh, it, it ended up being a lot more than that it's effectively a cricket history segment which <laughs> is so much fun because well look part of the reason why cricket and especially test cricket is a great sport is all the the history and all the numbers and uh, that, that's coincided beautifully with how nerd pledge used to work and yeah i think that as we uh, continue to roll out two eps a week this will become a bigger part of the weekend show well i think with that said we can have no further ado it's time adam for nerd pledge the game of nerds the game of pledges the game we play with people on our patron page where they support the show thank you by sending us a number of dollars and cents and those dollars and cents add up to a cricket number they know what it is we don't sometimes we get a hint sometimes we don't but we have to work out what the number <laughs> is we've got some new numbers and we've got some revisits on the ones that we may not have got right in previous shows and kicking us off today is Phil Smith, who came through with $4.90. Very generous pledge. Thank you, Phil. And sent the hint that this related to county cricket and that it was the best and fastest spell I have seen in my life, Adam. Yeah, when I first saw Phil Smith come through, it might have been, I thought it might have been uh, a friend of ours who came to the Adelaide show, but it can't be that. Phil Smith, because I doubt he would have um, been talking about county cricket from the 90s. So in the absence of a database that we have access to for county cricket, that's a tough, 
a touch harder than, than it is looking up international data. I went to the, the great man, Andrew Sampson, who's been, of course, a guest on the final word in the past on Nerd Pledge Quiz and Test Match Special Statistician, the best in the world uh, by any yardstick, really. Uh, and I asked him what this might mean. And he said his best guess would be Andre Van Troost, who had those figures for Somerset versus Essex at Taunton in 1996. Samo goes on to say that he fits the description of extremely fast, uh, but there was nothing special about the game that he can see. It wasn't even his best bowling or his debut. Um, he, he cited a couple of other fast bowlers there, Jeff, but I think Andre Van Troost, uh, yes, uh, look, if, he, if he's extremely fast and he took those figures, that, that's good enough for me and hopefully it's good enough for Phil. Well, it led me to dig into the life of Andre Van Troost, who was a Dutch international <laughs> who ended up coming over to play for Somerset Seconds team as a teenager. Um, he got billeted in a hotel when he, he came over for a few different summers in his late teens. Um, and the memorable quote from him about this time was, I had my own double room right next to McDonald's and I literally spent my whole summer holidays bowling fast and eating Big Macs. So they were pretty special <laughs> times for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but what you're going to love, Adam, is that he played in Marcus Triscothic's first game for Somerset, Andre Van Troost. Ooh, um, and he, that's a that's a game I've looked at many times. <laughs> and he was he was fierce, and he was a quick bowler who didn't necessarily know where it was going all the time. And, and so he's he's actually a bowler who got dragged from the attack at one point by umpire Barry Doodleston, whose name I also love. Um, Van Troost got taken out for intimidatory bowling. And you're going to love some of the details here. So he bowled, he bowled his one bouncer for the over. It must have been in a 50-over game. And then proceeded mm. to bowl two more head-high bouncers at none other than Nigel Long, who went on to become a test umpire. <laughs> so he bounced the shit out of Nigel Long and got no-balled for each of the subsequent bounces, having had his one for the over. And then in his next over, he came back and bowled an absolute beamer head high that knocked the bat out of the hands of Graham Cowdery, the son of Colin Cowdery, um, and got yanked from the attack by the umpire and, and sent off for the rest of the day. So um, he's had he's had quite the afternoon. Yeah, he really did. He he did that till he was twenty six, and then he retired with a buggered back because he'd been bowling fast for too long, and and that was the end of the um, cricketing career of Andre Van Troost. Beautifully done. The reason I, I mentioned that Triscothic first game and why I've gone back to it a couple of times is that he was captained by Chris Taveray uh, in that. Uh, in that game and, and it linked the two careers together rather neatly because Tavare was at the end of his very long career and then at the start of Triscothic's mm. extremely long career and which ended only last year. So I think between the two of them, they span off the top of my head nearly half a century of cricket in the county championship. So there you go. Nice start. Phil Smith, thank you so well, much. Life is a Tavare, old chum. Come to the Tavare. <laughs> Next up is Brian R. Kane and that's a middle initial. Uh, his name is not Brian R. Kane being Brian who's very... Sort of old fashioned and indecipherable. His number, 132. What does 132 and what does Brian mean to you, Adam? I went back and tried to find a clue. I, I know Brian. Uh, he's a friend of mine. He, his only reference to Nerd Pledge before was that he was going to make his 214 to reflect Winnie's. Um, date of birth, which was the 2nd of February. And the reason he would do that is because Brian's American and thus the date for him is 2-14, not 14-2. Good story meeting him. Two years ago, he, he um, got in touch through an old colleague of mine, Alex, who I used to work with in politics and he's a 
cricket nutter who lives in America, lives in New York, uh, who has spent time playing Aussie Rules. He's a rabid Collingwood supporter, um, played Aussie Rules in, in New York, that is, plays local cricket uh, in America, and thought, sod it, I'm going to fly to England in order to watch a test match between England and India. And as you'd remember, Jeff, that was a classic match too, the one at Edgbaston. It went, um, it went uh, you know, I think England won by 30 or 40 runs. Yep. But he only had tickets for day four and day five and it ended one hour into the fourth day or something like that. So he ended up only getting to see an hour, but it was a fantastic hour of cricket where, um, you know, either side could have won. So in the end, I invited him to come and join us on the piss uh, and then subsequently to join uh, Rach and myself in, in London the following day for an afternoon walking around Peckham. So um, <laughs> I'm glad that Brian is now in on, on the nerd pledge action as well because he's a lovely guy excellent well uh, i've been doing some excavating on 132s because i wanted to find something suitably interesting here's one you might enjoy sandhya agarwal made four of the first six test centuries made by an indian women's player dominated early on captained india in the 80s and at blackpool in 1986 made 132 against england that tally of four test hundreds that she's made is still to this day one third of the total number of test centuries ever made by indian women they haven't played a test match since 2014 so there have been 12 test hundreds by the Indian women's team, and four of them belong to Sandhya Agarwal. She's a, a life member of the MCC in London as well and, and really pioneered those years in the 80s where she was uh, by far and away the best bat. Very nice, Jeff. And I see some other notes you've taken here. None of them make any sense to me, which kind of excites me. You've yep. got some code for me to break. And I haven't been able to break it at all. I see a number of high-profile names, a number, number of years written down as well. I mean, the floor is okay, yours. Because well, I, don't, I don't like to give it away before we actually get on the show. I want it to be fresh. I want, I want your excitement <laughs> to be conveyed to people listening for the first time. So if we're looking at 132s, Plum Warner is a name that we know because he was England's tour manager during the Bodyline series in 1933. I always forget which year it is, 32-3? And and was famously the one that Bill Woodfull had a crack at uh, after England had been bowling Bodyline at the Adelaide Test. But Plum Warner also has a a stand named after him at Lord's. He's... I assume it's named after him, the Warner Stand. Yep, sure is. <laughs> and and played in the the. <laughs> they didn't they didn't name it after David no. the first time he went to Lords. Put well, it I was way. thinking after the previous Ashes in 2019, maybe he could get his name on it because England were very fond of him by the end of that series. So True. so this relates Plum and David Warner are, are linked in another way. Now Plum Warner got this 132 in Johannesburg in 1899, right? During the Ashes last year, everybody talked about David Warner making the lowest number of runs by a batsman who'd played 10 innings in a test series, right? But they always, they always yes. had the caveat that it was a top six batsman, as if to say that any, any specialist batsman, not a bowler. But I've worked out that there was some fiddling with those figures because they wanted it to sound better than it was. So there are two. No, people like us fiddled with figures for broadcast. Yeah, because they wanted to make it sound no. more compelling. They wanted to make it sound more <laughs> compelling. So there are two proper batsmen who made fewer runs than David Warner's 95 across 10 innings mm. in a series. But the catch is that both of them in those series played one innings at number seven 
And so by saying that it had to be a batsman who played all of the innings in the top six, you could shave off these last couple, which meant that Warner wasn't the third worst, he was the worst. So it made him sound worse than it was. But one of those players was Plum Warner, who after making this 100 in South Africa, the next time he went to South Africa, made 89 runs in five test matches and could not play the googly bowling at all and, and got absolutely shredded. Uh, like Warner, he made one half century in the series and then made a, a string of single-figure scores. And the other one is, oh, nice. is Leary Constantine, the great West Indian all-rounder who had a horrible tour to Australia in 1931 and made 72 runs across 10 innings in that series. But he also batted once at number seven. So it's, it's quite amusing when you look through the numbers where it's it's by the end of the series plum warner is just hiding himself down at seven because he's captaining that side and he's like oh god <laughs> i don't want to go out there again <laughs> um, but it didn't work <laughs> and it didn't work for leary constantine either so uh, those are the two players who've done worse than david warner but david and plum are, are joined in their their terrible 10 inning stretches within a single series um over a century apart 120 years apart that's beautiful. I'm going to the other end of the spectrum, uh, initially anyway, with Bobby Abel. So Bobby Abel's highest score in Test cricket was 132 not out. Of course, who, who the, is Bobby the famous Abel? prolific Surrey batsman uh, from around the turn of the century, played the majority of his cricket in the 1880s and 1890s. Mm-hmm. Um, I was at the park the other night where at Suffolk uh, Park with a number of our friends from Wisdom Cricket Monthly and friends of the magazine, and we were having a net. It was Fucking good time, I've got to say. <laughs> Getting a bat in my hand and being able to, um, uh, to, to to clobber the ball around a couple of times felt really, really good after all these months locked away. Uh, but um, that's a ground where there's a, where, where he grew up. Uh, but um, the reason I, I thought he was worth bringing up is because just the other day I was looking at a list of triple hundreds. So after I was complaining on the weekly show about there being no comprehensive list of triple hundreds, the great man Hypercourse, who is, um, of course, a prolific statistician in his own right, especially on the women's game, um, provided me with a a list of every double hundred ever made in first-class cricket. So in turn, that that captures the the doubles and the triples and the and the quadruples and and the and the five hundred, of course, that Brian Lara made uh, in 1994. But it meant that I did have a look at Bobby Abel and saw that come up in the list when he made mm-hmm. 357 not out in 1899. So it was already front of mind when this jumped out the one three two. The interesting part about Abel's triple ton, though, is that uh, he made it when he was 41 years old and six months. So at that age, at the very end of his first-class career, well, nearing the end of it, he made a triple hundred, 357 not out against Somerset. <laughs> that made him the third oldest player, well, it makes him, I should say, the third oldest player to get to 300 in a first-class game. You're wondering who's the oldest, Jeff? I of am. course, it's W.G. Grace. He made, the, Dr. Grace, uh, three years before that, in 1896, made 301 against Sussex when he was 48 years old. So there you go. It's probably not Bobby Abel's one three two not out, but I just want to say there's a nice little through line there from from that <laughs> wonderful era um, before the turn of the century. <laughs> okay, um, but I'm led to believe that we still haven't actually got to what you think it is because you're holding something back up your oh, sleeve. Oh no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After all of that, I actually think it's something else. So as I said before, Brian. Uh, Brian is evangelical about his love of cricket. I just love the way that he's taken to our sport, probably in his 30s, I reckon, when he first came to cricket, Um, so much so that he wanted to start live blogging games retrospectively from the 80s and 90s, which, of course, he wasn't exposed to as a kid so that he could fully take in the greatness of it all. He's, He's got that kind of personality and that I said that he flew over for a test match in 2018 we well, did it again in 2019 and he didn't fly over 
for one of the Ashes Test matches or one of the, the World Cup games. He's, he's been cricket hipstified as well. So he flew over for the Ireland-England Test match in July last year at Lords. So he's become a bit of an Ireland cricket fan. And I see, of course, that 132 is very relevant to Irish cricket. It was the score that Ireland bowled Pakistan out for on St. Patrick's Day in 2007, the very famous World Cup game that Ireland were able to win. They chased down that tally um, from nowhere, eliminating Pakistan from that tournament, putting Ireland on the map in their very first World Cup and sent them on that trajectory towards Test cricket some 11 years later. So I'm almost certain, with it being Brian, that it'll be an Irish link, and I reckon it's going to be back in 2007 at Sabina Park. Good Lord. We are 18 minutes into this podcast and we've done one number. <laughs> so... <laughs> No, sorry, we've done two. Oh, we've, we've done, done two. two. We've done two. We've done nine two. minutes it's worth each. It though, isn't it? We're going well. Just bear with us for it's another two and a half hours, and we'll get through the next three. <laughs> um, <laughs> next on our list, it's a double header. It is Joel Wilson. I'm not sure if it's the umpire, Joel Wilson, but I hope it is. Big fans of your work on the show. I, th- I think well, you got stitched up. At I was going to say, given, given the way you've talked about Joel Wilson over the last year or so, I doubt Joel Wilson no, is contributing I'm a, I'm to a, our I've podcast. I've been a big defender of Joel Wilson. <laughs> After heading every, have you? Yeah, I'm. I'm after heading or you were. After heading or you were. I'm the one who came out after Headingley and said that the uh, the 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 Stokes decision versus Lyon was actually probably correct, and he got stitched up by DRS. I'm I'm all (laughs) all in on Joel Wilson. I'm he's he's you know it was understandable that call, Um, and I'll correspond with you at length about that if you feel the need. Anybody, Joel Wilson, umpire or not, and Tom Andre Anderson have both come through with $2.44, Now, a couple of things that popped up for me, Adam, is that Mitchell Stark has 244 test wickets, which does make me wonder. He's only 30 years old. He, he could go a lot further than that because, the, you know, the, the real great fast bowling Australian mark is 300. That's only Mitchell Johnson, Brett Lee, Dennis mm. Lilly, and, and then Glenn McGrath off in the 500s. So he could be there within a couple of years and then... Who knows how much he, longer he might go on from that. And, and for an Ireland link to your previous one, 244 is the number of matches that Kevin O'Brien, the man who likes to think that he's Mitchell Stark sometimes when he has the ball in hand, bowling at 115 k's <laughs> an hour, is, has played 244 matches, uh, Kevin O'Brien. Yeah, I, I like that on the basis that Kevin O'Brien, of course, uh, well, he made a century in the next World Cup, 2011, when they beat England, and then, of course, a ton in their first Test match in 2018. But uh, I reckon we might have to uh, go a bit broader on this one. So th- there's two scores of 244 in Test cricket, and I'm going to give one each to Joel. One to Joel and one to Tom. Mm-hmm. Um, let's start with, well, the, the more obvious of the two, the, the game that you and I were at, Jeff. So Alistair Cook. Uh, made an unbeaten 244 at the MCG in 2017. I went and had a look at the the particulars of that. Um, just thinking about Dob Sibley before, actually, I was going through long England hundreds, and Cook's double ton took 634 minutes and 409 oh. balls. He batted for the better part of two days. The first hundred of that was... Beautiful. It was one of the best hundreds Cook made in his long and storied career. But after the first hundred, it, it, it was harder work as the pitch was, well, it was worse than dead. It was the worst pitch I've ever seen in, in Test cricket, actually. So, um, and of course, Alistair Cook will be back playing first class cricket uh, the week after next. The 1st of August is when the new season starts. It's likely to be his final year mm. with. Essex, but but he will be there. So he'll be going back from the commentary box back out to Chelmsford. So we get one more chance to watch Cook this year. I think it was also, it was either the first or the second time that he'd ever batted with Stuart Broad 
in a test match after playing. Oh, right. They played some. They played over a hundred tests together, and they'd right. they might they'd either done it once or never done it before because he's Cook. Well, he carried his bat, didn't he, or just about. I think they declared. I feel like they might have declared after Broad Anderson and, was out the uh, next Cook. morning, wasn't he? Early the next morning. Oh, in that case, Cook did carry his bat. You're right, he did because he was unbeaten mm. on two four four. And you're right, Anderson did get out the next day because Broad and Cook put on fifty plus, hundred plus, didn't yeah. they? If I recall, yeah, it was it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was Broad swinging sixes and and uh, and they were playing "Don't Stop Me Now" over the PA, and that, that was that was the one fun <laughs> bit of that Test match. God, it was a grind, uh, nonetheless. So, so what's your other two forty four? Well, the other two four four is Bradman. And, Jeff, I know you've looked at the scorecard quite a bit, mm. uh, but n- probably not for the Bradman element to it, although he's a contributing part to the record in question. So Bradman makes 244 at the Oval in 1934, so the final test of that Ashes series. But up the other end, uh, he's not even the highest score. Bill Ponsford makes... 266, of course, it's the partnership of 4-5-1. So they came together with the score 21 for 1, and they uh, and they left when it was 472 for 2. I, I had a look, and imagine you're Bill Brown. You're out for 10 in about the fifth over of the test match or whatever it is, and, and these, these two blokes are, are cracking on for a long time together. Australia go on to make 701 and win the test by 562 runs, which I thought you'd also like, Jeff. So there's a 4-5-1 partnership that you've written about yeah. a couple of times when, when, uh, when batsmen or pairs have got close to that. I remember famously um, you were... Very angry in, in 2015 when Voges and Sean Marsh fell 10 runs short. No, two runs like short, that. I think. They were 4-4. Four, four, two nine. runs short. Two I, runs. I, was, I was more relieved in the end. I just thought, like, it would, you know, <laughs> it's one of those ones you don't want. It's like if Voges had averaged over 100. Like, you don't want it, you know. It's, it, it becomes a millstone around your neck. Yeah, yeah. So the four five one remains, and, and it was the, the highest partnership in Test cricket for a long time. I'll come back to that in a sec. But the, the tally that Australia won by, so 5-6-2 by runs, uh, that's the second highest margin ever in Test cricket. The biggest, though, was a- another link to the final word. It's where we recorded the final word in the grandstands about nearly, oh, probably 18, 20 months ago when um, Australia uh, played Sri Lanka at the Gabba. The Test match finished early. So you and I went down to the Brisbane Exhibition Ground uh, and sat in the grandstands there, which is where Don Bradman made his debut in November 1928. A test match at Australia lost by 675 runs, which remains the, the biggest margin in Test cricket on that measure. So that's not including when you lose by an innings and, and plenty. This is just on that runs measure when the Test match goes the full four innings. Well. In terms of partnerships, 4-5-1 was overtaken in 1990-91, the season in New Zealand where Andrew Jones and Martin Crowe put on 467 against Sri Lanka. So 4 5 ones now in fourth spot with Sangakara and Jay Wardner's 624-run stand for the third wicket in 2006 at Colombo against the South Africans in at number one and presumably one of those marks that probably... I mean, I can't imagine that'll ever be beaten 6-2. It just seems like such a... I can't, I can't conceive of how a pair will put on more than that in, in the modern game. Mm. Well, at, at the SSC, anything can happen batting-wise. The, you talk yeah. about flat tracks. That's the uh, the flattest of them all. Well, maybe maybe uh, Antigua, St. John's would, would be up there True. As, as its rival. Pretty dead... Yeah, pretty dead. So why don't we give Cookie to Joel, and we and we give Bradman and Ponsford, but Bradman out of the out of the big partnership. He's two four four to Tom. All right, Tom Andre and Joel. Thank you for two four four. Next on our list, 
Jeremy Nash with three dollars fifty one, three fifty one, and you will not believe what I found, Adam, when I looked this up. We spoke last week well, <laughs> about Wayne N. Phillips, not the other Wayne Phillips. This Wayne Phillips, the one who played a single Test match for Australia in nineteen ninety two, making scores of fourteen and eight at the Wacker, opening the batting against India in a match that Australia won by about three hundred runs. His Australian Test cap number. 351 351 that couldn't have been Jeremy's number because that Jeremy's number would have come through weeks ago and we only spoke about Wayne Phillips last week but I couldn't resist it was too good well, don't rule it out. He might be a WN Phillips fan. A I'm freak. sure it won't surprise you, Jeff, and you might have, you might have seen this on yeah, exactly. You might have seen this on Twitter uh, that uh, I couldn't help myself. As soon as we talked about WN on the show the other day, I, I asked Rob Alinda to compile a package for me of um, runs from that 14 and 8 at the Wacker yep. in 1992. So he said he can work on that for me and send me a, a selection of scoring shots from his brief test career. All 22 um, of those runs. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, but I, I think it's worth noting, though, that sometimes the Wayne Phillips thing is a bit of a punchline because of the the name that he shares with the, um, the South Australian batsman from the 80s. But he did earn his spot. By that I mean he, he, the Shield final of 1991, uh, Victoria were chasing 239 to win that game. And when you consider the other scores in that match were 223, 134 and 119 at, at an MCG back in those days, which was a shit heap. We used to keep low and shoot through, especially towards the end of uh, test matches. So I assume it was the same for four-day games. And chasing 239, Victoria are two for 27. And that's when Jamie Siddons walks out to join Phillips. And then they bat and bat and bat and have an unbeaten 212-run stand to win the Sheffield Shield. They end up winning by eight wickets. Phillips ends up unbeaten on 91. Siddons on 124, which I suppose uh, in terms of lucky cricketers, people think of Wayne Phillips, the, the other side of the spectrum is Siddons, who, who played a one-day international in 1988 where he made 32 or 37, not a bad start when you consider the, the tempo of the game at 50 over level in that era, but never got an opportunity to play another one day. I never made a test so much as making a test squad. I don't think he ever even toured with the Australian team apart from 88. Uh, I never got the chance to, to earn a baggy green despite making 35 first-class tons and averaging 45. He's one of those guys that always ends up in sort of unluckiest cricketers not to play a test match. Mm. So, but on that day, it, w- it was WN Phillips, which was, I'm sure, influential in getting him his baggy green, and Jamie Siddons, who won Victoria the Shield. Well, here is hoping, Jeremy Nash, that you are indeed a WN freak. You've got to remember that you can't spell win without WN. Next up is Guy Donovan, Guy Incognito, who has come through with 129. What might 129 suggest to a cricket enthusiast, Adam Collins? Some pretty good caps. I just want to note, you know, Sid Barnes, as in the English Sid Barnes, not the Australian one. Roy Fredericks, the West Indies, great from the 60s. And Jeremy Coney, who, of course, is friend of the podcast, been on the final word in the past, former New Zealand skipper. They were all the 129th. Um, cricketers to play for their countries. Talk about during dinner party right there. I loved that joining because um, we've talked about Sid Barnes on the show before, you know, bowler from the 1890s and, and thereabouts. And then the fact that he's England's 129th and then Jeremy Coney, you know, 70 years later is is, uh, is New Zealand's 129th. So yeah. it's quite the pairing, uh, Barnes and Coney together at last. 
Yeah, I, I reckon it would been quite the night out. Um, probably talking about um, their days in league cricket and, and so on. Because, <laughs> of course, Sid Barnes ended up spending a lot of his time playing in the Staffordshire League rather than... Well, playing for Staffordshire, I, sh- I should say, in the minor counties rather than playing first-class cricket. So you look at his um, numbers or his, his stats page and he looks like the sort of guy who should have bowled a lot more in first-class cricket. But in the end, he did most of it at, at minor counties level. Anyway, I digress. Uh, the other um, 129 that that hopped out to me uh, was, well, one of a number of them. It was the score that England were bowled out for at Amazing Adelaide in, in mm. the third innings of the 2006 Test match show when Shane Warne and Glenn McGrath, but mostly Warne and then McGrath at the end, sort of uh, put the squeeze on England on morning five, which set up Australia a most unlikely victory after four fairly pedestrian days when it was high scoring and wickets were a premium and then Australia go nuts and... Skittle England for one two nine, so that's a number that may stand out for an Australian fan. If guys one of those, I, I think that one two nine sounds pretty good for Adelaide. Uh, the other one I would have is that we spoke about Everton Weeks just recently passing away. He made one hundred and twenty nine in partnership with Frank Worrell, who made two hundred and sixty one to beat England at Trent Bridge in nineteen fifty when they went two one up in that four test series. So that's a, a nice little link back to what we've spoken about recently. Yeah, there is. And in terms of the generation we've been talking about today, mostly around the, the turn of the 20th century, one of CB Fry's two test tons was a, a 129 against South Africa at the Oval in 1907. And I'll just add that Mark Taylor's 100 at Edgebaston in 97. Of course, the Australian captain has said, at the, well, he kind of said it at the time, but certainly afterwards, um, that he would have dropped himself had he failed in that innings at the end of the, <laughs> the second innings of the first uh, 97 Ashes Test. Of course, Australia were bowled out for about 100 odd in the first dig, and they ended up losing the match. But Taylor made one two nine and def- defiant innings. I remember that the the, the hundredth runner a push to extra cover, and uh, I think the uh, the weight of the nation's expectations came off his shoulders that day, and it liberated him to, of course, have a quite productive hmm. uh, couple of years to finish his Test career. Those are all our new numbers for this show. We'll race through some follow-ups and correspondence we've had. Now, Harry Howard put through $2.16 on the last show, and I was adamant that two sixteen, of course, would be Clary Grimmett's tally of test wickets. <laughs> uh, and you said that it never is and that, that I'm always wrong when I say that. And Harry emailed and said, I got the wrong number. Sorry, it was supposed to be 219. <laughs> <laughs> so he's now changed uh, it and it will come up later in, in in a few weeks time when it comes through the list well jeff on that theme we, we did receive an email a message on patreon sorry rather from from terry hogan who wanted to uh, in, in the context of old spinners have us not forget about bert ironmonger who at age 50 and 327 days was the second oldest test cricketer of all time behind Wilfred Rhodes, but um, the man they called Dainty, um, debuted at age 46. He played his last test in that bodyline series, of course, of 1932-33, which, as he says, makes Clary Grimmett look like a spring chicken. Yeah, they were just old spinners. They were all the rage for probably 100 years there. It was like, it doesn't matter, 45, 50, you can still spin the ball. You can still, you know, <laughs> you, you can still shuffle up a couple of steps to the crease and put some work on it and land it on the length, and good enough, but... Um, as Terry mentioned in his message, he said that Harold Larwood bowling to a 50-year-old Bert Ironmonger in the Bodyline series was the greatest cricketing mismatch of all time. And it's, it's definitely up there. It's probably up there with Alan Donald bowling to that, um, whoever the member of the royal family was who played for the UAE, yeah. who came out facing Donald wearing a floppy hat and got sconned immediately um, in, in the World Cup in 
Which World Cup was it? 92? Yeah, it was the World Cup of 96. I think he was wearing a Terry Towling hat, wasn't he? And he yeah, he gets scones trying to play a hook shot off Alan Donald bowling, <laughs> probably 95 mile an hour. <laughs> a peak of his pace, you know, it's when Donald was frightened. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the, the royal Cup, family but... member was, you know, 40-odd and, and was batting himself at nine while captaining and not bowling, you know, sort of classic kind of <laughs> um, village areas and just thought, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll go out and give this youngster a bit of what for. Didn't work. Um, pick your battles, they say. Anyway, that, that's from that's from Terry. Uh, Matthew Share had the number 405 that we were discussing on the last show. He hasn't been in contact, but uh, quite a few other people have. An obvious one we missed, Rob Richardson reminded us that it's Kirtley Ambrose's wicket telly, which Rob said he only knows because he was at a bar in the West Indies when Kirtley pulled up in like a massive shiny SUV with the number plate Ambi 405. <laughs> So he, he hasn't forgotten that number to this day. Well, I, I know, Jeff, you and I have both been really lucky to work with Kirtley as one of our summarisers on radio over the last four or five years. We've had a couple of chances to work with the big man. And um, uh, the last time I was in Antigua, and I, while we've been talking, they've had a feature uh, on Sky Cricket who have done a brilliant job again in the first couple of days of this, of this test. But um, they were sitting at the recreation ground there at St John's, which is just a wonderful place. The three times up into Antigua, it's like the first place I go to almost as a tourist. And the last time I was there, I they've still got some kind of, I, I'd call them food vans sort of. Like they're, they're old. They've been there for a million years, but they remain open despite the fact that it's no longer a cricket ground. And I went and pulled up a seat there to, to have a bite to eat. And, and who's sitting next to me but, but Kirtley Ambrose. And I spoke to the owner of the shop after we finished our you know, respective meals. And she said, yep, every time he's here hmm. uh, in St. John, he, he comes by and, and visits and, and has a bite to eat here. He's a good boy. So uh, I'm glad that that clashes with what we were watching just then on television. The other thing about 405 we missed, of course, was Graham Hicks 405, the unbeaten uh, quadruple 100 uh, that he made before he was eligible to play for England, of course, when he was at Worcestershire. Uh, that was one of the – or certainly his highest first-class score, but one of the handful of quadruple tons uh, in the history of the game. Simon goes on to say that he's still got a pair of pads in his old coffin with the 405 branded on it. He couldn't afford the matching bat, though. So the former Australian assistant batting coach there, Graham Hick, who lost his job recently, but I hope he's going well because he's a lovely guy. And, and that, yeah, that's from Simon Trafford, who I like to think is called Old Trafford by his friends. I certainly hope that that's <laughs> the case. And then there's this number that we've been pursuing but haven't got any nearer in the oh, last yeah. few weeks. Elliot Diamond had this 250 this $2.50, 250 that we we're trying to work out. We were throwing all sorts of things around. We've had a couple of goes at it. Uh, he sent us more and more hints uh, and said that he might have tried to get a bit too cute with the clue, but he said, think about a famous innings in the last 12 months. The number involves balls faced at a point in the innings. And I have gone forensically through everything <laughs> i've gone through every obviously you're not going to have an innings of more than 250 balls in a one day or a t20 game it has to be a test innings i've looked at everything i've looked at everything that could be deemed famous there aren't that many test innings in the last year that have gone for more than 250 balls i've looked at points of 250 deliveries in an innings you know the world cup final nothing really happened at the 250th ball nothing significant that i could see the closest I could get was that Elise Perry's Test 100 came up off the 245th ball. So that's almost there, but it's not there. But I think we're going to have to concede defeat on this, Elliot. We'll throw it out to the listeners. If you know, let us know. 
Yeah, I, I thought maybe it could be Rory Burns' uh, first 100 in Test cricket. Ugh. Jeff, of course, you were fixated by that Ugh. at the time, but even Rory uh, took fewer than 250 balls to reach three figures on, on that occasion. I'm stumped as well. I thought World Cup final. I thought maybe that the chase at, at Leeds, but I'm, I'm, yeah, as in at the 41.4 over okay. mark, which, of course, constitutes 250 balls, but I'm nowhere near it. So, Elliot, back to you, but perhaps, yeah, over to the over to the final word family. If you know what this might mean, do drop us a note. And uh, I think that's about all we have for today in this heroic segment of Nerd Pledge. My voice is going. Um, Adam will probably give out soon as well. Uh, this has been Nerd Pledge. If you'd like to play like to send us a number to have us peruse and tell you about the history associated with it and see if we can guess your particular cricket interest, you just go to patron.com slash the final word, sign up there, set your number, you can set your monthly max or if you want to do it per show or whatever you want to do. And in doing so, you can help keep the show going and keep us <laughs> having these interesting adventures week to week. Indeed. Jeff, uh, time for us to take a quick break on the Final Word Weekend Edition. And after we've done that, we'll be back with Kate Cross. Jeff, as we mentioned at the start of the show, this weekend edition of The Final Word is in conjunction with the Lord's Tavern as an organisation we've partnered with recently through Calling the Shots and now with The Final Word, and we're really proud to do so. They're the leading uh, youth cricket and disability sports charity in the UK. It's all about uh, breaking down barriers and empowering disadvantaged and disabled young people to fulfil their potential and build life skills. They've got a number of fantastic cricket programs that are targeted at some of the most marginalised and at-risk young people in the UK. And they use cricket and the vehicle of sport to build links to communities and encourage groups to play cricket and play sport together. And uh, this year, 2020, we know has been a really tough year for a lot of people who are at risk. And the Lord's Tavern is doing everything they can to continue raising money for their important programs. Yeah, they've tailored these programs to what's happening in the world at the moment and they've launched what they're calling the Isolate campaign. Uh, They're doing that because they know that a lot of people are experiencing isolation and loneliness, especially over the past few months. They recognise that that's a a massive mental health challenge at the same time Mm. as just being a a day-to-day life challenge. And so that campaign is trying to raise awareness of the impact of isolation and loneliness on disadvantaged and disabled young people. The numbers tell us that loneliness and isolation impact disadvantaged and disabled people much more harshly than they do people who are not suffering those disadvantages. And so the Lord's Taverners are hoping to get help by getting people to donate eight pounds to the Isolate campaign and then nominate eight friends to help donate as well. And that can help them raise the funds that they need to to help people who are in those sort of difficult situations. Yeah, the stat is for those who are living with disabilities, uh, they're twice as likely to suffer from loneliness. It's it's fairly stark. And there, look, there are 12,000 people in the UK who benefit from work that the Lord's Taverners do each year. They've been going since 1950. They're, they're a serious organisation with lots of fantastic people who, who work with them. And since the outbreak of COVID-19, the programs have in large part 
uh, run to a halt. So that's denying the vulnerable participants the opportunity to regularly interact with friends and play sport. And we know at this time, as you said before, Jeff, increased feelings of isolation and loneliness for participants in, in these really important programs. So here's the chance for, for people in the Final Word community to get behind um, the Lord's Taverners and show our support in the Isolate campaign. It'll all be in the show notes, lordstaverners.org. It's pretty straightforward. You donate eight quid through their platform. You nominate eight friends to do the same, and hopefully we can play our part to help the Lord's Taverners continue with their important work. So for all of that information, jump on lordstaverners.org. Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. This is The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, and I'm thrilled to be sitting out looking across Hove Cricket Ground in Sussex with England seamer opening bowler Kate Cross. Thanks for being on the show. No problem. Thanks for having me. You've got a great story, and we're going to look forward to telling everyone all about it a couple of years outside the national side a child prodigy of sorts and uh, such a such an excellent opportunity now to to have a long career in the england side but let's go back to where you grew up what's it like growing up in lancashire tell us about your childhood <laughs> it's very wet in lancashire um i think any english english person will tell you that is wet up north but um i mean i had a great childhood um, i've got an older brother and an older sister and my entire oh, you know my summer holidays I just remember spending playing cricket in the garden with them and if I wasn't in the garden I was down at my cricket club which is a place called Haywood uh, which is where my brother my dad my uncle Bob they all played their cricket there so um yeah I just I just remember sport being a, a huge part of my life from it from an early age um and I think then that you know naturally led me to have better opportunities and, and be able to well I guess be sat where I am today in lovely hove with you guys I love that you have an uncle Bob I think everyone <laughs> in Lancashire should have an uncle Bob it's a thing isn't it yeah <laughs> um, quite I, literally Bob it, is my uncle but wow anytime anything gets done yeah. you'll be like no no it's, it's it's got nothing to do with the uh, efficacy at which we've achieved this process Bob is still my uncle yeah. regardless of whether we've succeeded or not from an Australian point of view I reckon if you like if I had a, a sort of pop quiz I've, maybe I could name like 15 counties off the top of my head but I probably can't do all 18 what's tell us like what is lancashire for someone who doesn't know about everything in england you know compared to the other what, what's its character what's its identity um that's a good question which i hope i'll be able to answer and do everyone proud but um yeah lancashire is a big county in the northwest of england um i live in manchester which is probably the main the main i guess hub of lancashire but with that it spreads across to lancashire cheshire um you know there's a there's a lot that en- encompasses lancashire which i think makes me very proud because it, I represent quite a, a big part of England and mm. it's um, you know it's we wear the red rose that's our symbol and it's um, we've obviously got the big the big rivalry with Yorkshire which is nice especially in the KSL and that's going to go into the 100 next year we've seen that they're mm. going to they're going to have a Yorkshire team and a, a Lancashire team so um, yeah it's a big part of England and I'm very proud to be from up north and um, hopefully people can understand my accent I'm not too broad I'm not, not too much like Liam Gallagher it's perfect <laughs> yeah. it's perfect perfect for our purposes today uh, I mentioned off the top that you're a child prodigy and you really were when you consider that you know, you were playing first team at age 13 for your county. You were playing men's cricket and dominating. You were the first girl to ever be admitted to the Lancashire Academy at age 15. And, and all these other signposts which suggested that it was going to be Kate Cross, England cricketer. But it didn't happen that easily, really. You debuted at 22 when, when considering how long you were kind of in the system. How did, how did those expectations um, sit with you as a, as a teenager with everyone thinking eventually you were going to play for England? It's funny, really, because that was the kind of stuff that I didn't really consider when I was a youngster. Um like you said, there was there was this expectation that I was going to play for England. Mm. I was on the academy, and I think 
there was a, a crazy stat going around. It's probably not true now, but I was the most capped academy player. And, you know, <laughs> I, I, I was I was doing all these tours and, and training hard with the academy and I was just, I was never, um, I just was never quite good enough to make my debut, which obviously it came a little bit later on to say that I, I think I was in the academy from 16 or 17. Yeah. And like you said, I made my Lancashire debut when I was 13, but I think that's what, when I go back to, you know, my childhood was just cricket and sport and um, at school I was doing everything as well. And that's what, you know, playing for Lancashire, it was just the next step. And I was just, I was just a 13 year old, just loving the game and, um, and just enjoying myself and getting an opportunity, which I mean, I think in my first season, I didn't bowl an over. I think I just fielded for, for, for six months, which. <laughs> it's very familiar. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, that then led me, I guess, to, I mean, when I, when I took, I know we'll talk about this, but when I took time out of the game, I did a lot of, talking with our psych um he's a, a guy called mike funnily enough mike the psych um, <laughs> and, um uh, that was we, his uncle <laughs> yeah, but we did a lot of of talking about what that expectation did for me and having a father who was a good sportsman and everyone says to me now they say you must have the, the football gene and I'm, I'm absolutely dreadful at football like really really <laughs> bad I'm, I'm more of a netballer so um and but everyone finds that quite shocking I guess that you know my dad was a professional footballer and I didn't take the sport up um, but I think from an early age and this was something that I, I discovered when I did take time out of the game um, having a, a father that was famous or semi-famous for a footballer um, there was always people knew who I was before I'd even done anything to right. you know to make a name for myself and it, yeah and in all the programs the England programs everything it was David Cross's daughter Catherine mm. or mm. so sorry Catherine's my Sunday name um but <laughs> it, it was great for my dad because he had this resurgence in his career everyone wanted to speak to him and and get his autograph it's funny because we we're at Chelmsford the other day and he um he, that was a big place when West you know West Ham fans were all down there and they're like is your dad here is your dad here and like thankfully they can get his autograph as well but um yeah, I mean, I can I can joke about it now, but that was quite a realization for me. Um, you know, right. learning what what that meant and how much pressure I put on myself before I'd even got my name on the back of an England shirt. And, and that frustration of not being able to be your own person yeah. because you're you're someone else. Yeah, thankfully I'm a lot better at him at, at cricket. <laughs> but but like even my brother played cricket for Lancashire. He had a, yeah. a couple of seasons as a professional there, and you know it was always Bobby's sister as well. And um, I think. Now I'm I'm kind of proud of the fact that I've been able to make my own name, I guess, and, and put a little bit of a bit of substance towards me rather than just kind of riding on the back of my dad's coattails. Yeah, it's, it's such an interesting dynamic. I was doing some commentary the other week at Canterbury with Fabian Cowdery, who, of course, is the grandson of Colin Cowdery, and there's you know that ground down there. There's a Cowdery stand, there's a Cowdery street, and you know, and he he played a bit, but gave it up by about 24. But and we had a quite an interesting conversation about that, that on air about that that burden of you know he said the first time he came out to bat there he got a standing ovation from the from the members and it's like it's nice but also I haven't done anything yeah. I haven't I don't yeah I haven't earned it myself yeah and I, I I mean I don't know whether I'd see it as a burden I think you know there's obviously it's for me I'm incredibly proud that I'm my father's daughter and um I, I, I even saw something on Facebook yesterday that I've never seen and it was when they won the cup final with West Ham and it was mm. all the team doing interviews and I, it's it's great for me to be able to watch things like that and and I think from another level I've, I've got someone in the family well I've got a couple of people in the family who are involved in professional sport and they understand it a bit better and um you know sometimes that's a blessing sometimes it's a curse because people have been there and like my dad can give me advice about it but 
you know, the, the problem obviously is football is very different to cricket you don't play five days of football for a draw do you so <laughs> your first sort of stretch in the England side is punctuated by um, the, the Perth Test match which we still talk of as the greatest women's Test match certainly in the modern era um, you take three for 35 in both innings it's a it's a it's a, a, a close encounter on a, on a lively track and shortly after that you get given your first national contract where national contracts are brought in in 2014 but what was that transition like going from cricket being I think you described it as your hobby and then it becomes your job like it isn't as straightforward perhaps as it is for men where having a professional deal and being a, a full-time cricketer it might be an expectation growing up but it probably wouldn't have been what you would have thought when you were growing up no absolutely not and I remember being sat at school and you know they're going through our A-level choices and university choices and what do you want to be when you grow up and I think I had journalist in my head or something right. something in the media but or a physio for a short time as well teacher I went through it all but cricket mm-hmm. was never an option for us and so uh, yeah I did say that I said that you know it was my hobby and then overnight it, it became our job there was no real talk of us turning professional it just kind of happened mm. um, which was obviously great for us and you know getting paid to do something that you love but then with that there's that added expectation and that level of expectancy and um, I think that was something that again when I was talking with Mike um, it was just it was just something that I had to really work hard to, to figure out how best to do it and um, for the first probably two years of being professional I just I became a perfectionist which is just so unhealthy in this in professional sport you know it just doesn't happen the way you want it to and you know you don't you don't always get the results that you want from the amount of time and effort that you put into into sport and that's just the nature of it unfortunately you know you know you can but 2020 is a perfect example of that you can go out and bowl your perfect delivery and it gets smoked by Alyssa Healy for four so yeah that was a I think it was a learning curve for a lot of the girls as well and I you know I don't want to speak for anyone on or speak on their behalf or anything but as well for me then my other hobbies such as netball playing sport at school going skiing with my family that got taken away from me because you know you've, you've got to play cricket and you can't do anything else that might injure you and so then everything else got taken away from me as well so I think I'm still trying to work out what my hobbies are now I'm not I'm not actually too sure because cricket is such a big part of our lives you know we don't have a great deal of time to be doing um, anything else but maybe I'm going to have to take up stamp collecting or something but <laughs> it needs to be something low key where I can't get injured <laughs> <laughs> If you do manage to get a stamp injury that's going to be very very impressive <laughs> A severe paper cut <laughs> <laughs> um, This is really interestingly tying in with two other interviews that we've done so we talked to a bunch of different people across across the spectrum of well, mostly cricket related but um, Jimmy Neesham a few weeks ago talked about exactly the same thing you are talking about of being a perfectionist to the point that he didn't like playing anymore and whatever he did you know if he made 80 then he hadn't got 100 and if he made 140 he should have got a double and 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 so on and so on and then uh, will anderson who's a melbourne comedian who we interviewed a couple of months ago had this comment about you know that phrase about if you do something you love you'll never work a day again he said well yeah true in a way but if you make your hobby into a job you'll never have a day off again and is that kind of where it felt like yeah that sums it up actually because and i think especially in sport because you, you actually don't get time off you don't you know turn your emails off at 5 p.m and leave the office you you know it's in your food it's your lifestyle you know if you're if you're a big drinker that's got to stop and you know it is it's constant and um i think the the one day that we give ourselves is generally christmas day but even then we go out running in the morning so that we can almost earn the right to have a big lunch it's it's actually quite um it's very full-on when you look at it in that respect but i think the thing for me and that's something that i've learned coming back into I guess the second half of my career I call it it's that enjoyment factor and it's 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 been a real learning curve for me to learn to love the imperfection of cricket because it is so 
it's so unique isn't it and it's mm. it's such a a strange sport in that regard and it you know i say that all the time you're an individual in a team if you do well but your team loses or vice versa if you you know get a first ball duck and your team wins there's just so many emotions with that that are, are quite hard to control and i think playing more of the white ball stuff has has kind of forced me to enjoy that side of it as well and i think i was the the only person in our team to say this the other day but I enjoyed our fielding innings when Lanning scored that 100 that ridiculous 100 I mm. enjoyed it because you know I was out there with my mates you can bowl as well as you want to bowl and it doesn't go the way you want to and that's just the, the brutality of 2020 cricket but on the other end of that you've got a, a female athlete absolutely dominating the game and being an ambassador for the sport and, and showing the world what we can do as female athletes mm. so you know in if you're looking at it from a, a wider picture then it, it was actually quite enjoyable I mean the figures weren't don't get no, me wrong sure. but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's great perspective being able to sort of step back from it a little bit even being out there in that very challenging brutal environment and say look this is yeah. so important for the progression of the game and I, I'm sure there'll be a time when I'm you know 35 and sat at home with whatever my job might be after I've finished playing cricket and I'll I'll really miss days like that because mm. you know I was there I was I saw that and um it, I think like, that was something that my, my dad said to me quite... Well, he said it to me a couple of days ago, actually. He said, "These, you know, you'll miss this. It's not forever. You, your sporting career is not going to be a 40-year-long 40 lo- 40 career. It's, it's so short. Just enjoy what you're doing while you can. You mentioned red ball cricket and white ball cricket. Your opportunities started to dry up a little bit in white ball cricket in 2015. And, I mean, this ridiculous idea that you're a red ball specialist <laughs> started pervading some of the coverage given that women play one test match every two years. I suppose that comes partially a, a product of your success at men's club level, wasn't it? Having taken a big bag of eight wickets against the blokes in, in grade cricket. Yeah. There was a suggestion that you were a, a better Red Bull bowler, but, but parking that to one side, I have this really distinct memory of you, Kate. Um, the day that Tammy and Lauren went nuts down at Worcester. Worcester, and I remember watching you at the end of the game going up and being quite emotionally embraced by your family, and you had a huge smile on your face, and you know, basically you, you took a lot of tap with the ball that day, so the team's had a great re- result on the field. You haven't had such a great day, um, but subsequently you've talked about how you weren't feeling at all happy. The, nah. the, the image you were presenting to all of us as being happy with your, your family, watching you play for England, was, was the complete opposite to the reality inside your head at the time. Yeah, the emotions of that day were, were really strange for me because that was the first day that my all my immediate family had got to the same game. Right. Um, no one saw me make my debuts because I was in the West Indies and then I was in Australia for my test debut. So my family had gone nocturnal pretty much for that test match and mm-hmm. stayed up for all... all the hours through the night to watch it but it was the first time that everyone had got me had got to a game and that was probably the start of the end for me yeah that was a day that I'd, I remember so distinctively being down at fine leg and I had that lump in my throat and I had the tears in my eyes and thankfully I had my sunglasses on so no one could see but I just felt so so out of my depth and I remember thinking how am I in this starting 11 I'm just not good enough to be here I don't know what I'm doing um and that obviously then led to a bit of a I, I call it my, my big meltdown um, but mm. that was that was probably the start of where I realised that something wasn't quite right and and people always say to you and it really is frustrating but people say God you've got the best job in the world you travel around you're playing cricket for a living it must be absolutely brilliant and at that time I just felt like saying to people if, if only you knew what actually you're battling in your head you know if you if you could get inside what is going on in my head at the minute then you'd, you'd probably be quite surprised but again that was around the time that I was learning that transition and I think we'd only been professional for maybe 18 months then and um, I remember as soon as we did turn professional we lost that test match to India at Wormsley um, and suddenly there was the well they're getting paid for this how are they losing like this isn't right and I just remember there was yeah it was just 
that day was a big battle for me but in a way it was almost nice that my family were there because as the journey progressed it, it's been my family that have really helped me I guess get through the last or that two year period where I was out of international cricket um, so I think for them to have been there on that day and then when they came and watched my comeback last year at, at Leicester when I played against New Zealand it was you know that was just as emotional as the day that they all saw me play so um, but yeah it was a, it was just a very strange time for me do you think it had been building for a while before that? Was that sort of the culmination point, that that sort of breaking point day where you, you realised what's been happening? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, I didn't play, that was my last game for, for England. I didn't play, I think we went on to Taunton and that's when Alex Hartley made a debut. She came in for me. Um, and then it, I mean, that was, it was, I mean, it's all part of a bigger picture. The actual breakdown was when, it was when we were meeting up to go back down to Loughborough to start our winter training again. And I remember I was still living at my mum and dad's at the time and I I came down to breakfast and my mum was at work and my, my dad had retired by this point. It, ironically, to watch me play more cricket, he, he was mm. his football season that he was working in always coincided with winter tours and, you know, they trained through the summer now so he wasn't getting the opportunity to come and watch me play. And he said, what am I doing? I'm, you know, I'm 63 and I'm, my daughter's playing cricket for England. I'm, I'm not seeing any of it. And um, so he'd retired. He was down at, um, in the kitchen at breakfast and I just, I was in floods and floods of tears. And he said, what on earth? What's happened? You've only just woken up. You know, what, you've fallen down the stairs or something. And I just said, I, I, I can't. I can't go. I can't go to Loughborough. I can't get in my car. And I didn't understand what had happened, but I was just, I yeah. dreaded it so much. And I rang all the staff. I rang our, our physio Susan. I rang Mike and I said, I don't know. I don't know what to do here. I can't. I just, there's something wrong. I can't come to Loughborough. And um, Robbo rang me and he said, can you, can you come down? He said, we want to look after you. He said, I want the support staff to be with you. I want to, you know, make sure you're okay. So I somehow got in my car and my dad stood in front of it he said, I'm not letting you drive in this state. He said, you can't even see you've got that, you know, you're, you're that upset. I'd got to the point where you couldn't, I couldn't breathe. I was like, <laughs> yeah. that, that's, yeah. That, yeah. it was almost hysterical. Yeah. Um, and I did, I, I got myself down to Loughborough. I was picking, I was, funnily enough, I was picking Sophie Eccleston up on the way. So I, th- I had to go. I knew that that was my consequence. You know, I've got to go down there. Right. And um, I just got there and I couldn't, I couldn't go in the dressing room. I went and hid in the physio room. I couldn't see any of the girls and I'd never experienced this. And it was obviously, I, I didn't realise this came later, but it was anxiety. And um, I don't even know really what it was about. These girls are my friends, but that, I guess that just shows the power of your mind sometimes that it just takes over. And we were going to the West Indies. Uh, it was the build-up for the world, it might have been the, world, the T20 World Cup. Um, we had a West Indies trip and then a Sri Lanka trip straight away after that. And um, I just, Robbo just said to me, he said, you, we're going to pull you out of it, out of selection contention. I can't, you know, I can't take you like this. You're not. Right. And, I, and I said to him, I said, I, I don't think I could help the girls. I said, there's no point taking me out there. And even if I'm 60% of my best, then it's just not fair on the team to, to put me in that situation. So, um, yeah, I took a, I guess that was the start of then me working really hard with the with the psychologist and, and working out what trying to unravel everything that was going on in my head and you know it was at that time then that that was when he was starting to almost tell me what was going on and tell me w- what I was feeling and why I was feeling it and it was like I said earlier it was that um you know the thing with my father and um and I just it's funny I didn't believe it I was I said no no that doesn't bother me I've never bothered that my dad's a professional footballer and he said well you know it will there'll be a part of it that that is isn't involved in that that's so so deeply entrenched in there yeah and but like I said I I didn't I had a great childhood there was it's not like I can sit here and say oh you know 
I grew up without parents or anything bad and I think that was one of my big frustrations with dealing with depression was that I had no answer for it and it yeah. wasn't like I'd lost my job I wasn't bankrupt I didn't have a, a physical thing that I could point to and say this is why you're feeling like that and then to be able to I guess deal with your emotions and try and work it all out and how to get better that that makes it a little bit more difficult it's interesting how consistent it, it is with a lot of professional athletes. We've sort of ended up almost accidentally having this theme in the show. We've talked to Glenn Maxwell about it, to Jimmy Neesham about it, um, you as well. There's, there's such a kind of consistent um, series of behaviours and, and influences and so on. And I thought it was really interesting that you have, you have that moment where having to pick up Sophie is the thing that makes you... like someone else you can do something for someone else but yeah. you, you can't do anything for yourself to yeah. help yourself and that's uh, that's something that robbo um, when robbo came into the job he said because he always admires us for how ambassadorial we are i guess for our sport and we always want to do the grassroots stuff and we were all working for chance to shine when mm. he came in and he just said sometimes you're gonna have to say no you know you've got to learn that you come first that you're you know your career is first and that's something that I think as a team we've had to learn how to do as well and like the, the fear of letting people down and people thinking that you don't want to be at appearances or whatever it might be but you know he's, he's I mean he's done so many years with county cricket and how I mean it's it's a serious season for the boys isn't it they, they work really hard and they're always on the road so I think he he kind of taught us those those little bits of how to look after yourself as well um, Sarah Taylor and you were both close mates and she, she obviously went through a similar thing at a similar time to you and, and, and reading some stuff you did with opening up Cricket, the charity, the, well not charity, the, the, the pressure group which talks about um, yeah. uh, the depression and anxiety inside the sport. Um, she went on though in 2017 to play in the World Cup final. You didn't. You were, you were outside the squad. I remember on the day they kept handing to you on the balcony um, oh. with other teammates on, on the coverage. And it must have been, I mean I've read some comments you made in other interviews about how debilitating it was being at Lords that day knowing that your best friends are out there winning a World Cup for your country, but on the flip side, you almost feel as though it's uh, you don't want them to win. I, I mean, uh, and I'm not saying that's unusual. I think that would be quite a common experience for a yeah. sports person that can't be there sharing in it. There's a professional jealousy, and at the same time, you, you, you're desperate to see them win. What, what was it like for you that day? Yeah, it was it was really difficult, and that was um, a particularly difficult summer anyway because I felt like I was close to being back in the squad, yeah. um, and I felt like I wasn't. I was really, really disappointed to have missed out on it. You know, Robbo said to me, he said, you're not far away. You know, you're nearly back to being your best. And that was almost worse because I think being so close, you know, you know, you were, you, I might have been an injury away from being in the squad and potentially having a medal then. Um, I think looking back though, I'm, I'm quite glad I wasn't in that squad because I probably wouldn't have played. And I think to have a World Cup winner's medal when you've not played a game is a little bit you know, I, I probably wouldn't have been that interested in keeping the medal, right. which, you know, I, I, I've not, probably sounds a bit, a bit drastic, cause, but, you know, I wasn't in the squad, so I don't know the emotion of that. Um, but yeah, I remember we got invited to the semi-final and it was down at Bristol, they played South Africa um, and Claire Connor had put a day on for the families and said, you know, yeah. me, Amy and Tash, we were the three to have missed out in the World Cup. She said, you know, we're welcome to come down and bring our families and I just thought, oh God, I don't want to go. I just it's so far away I'm I'm not that interested in seeing my team that I want to be involved in do well and then my dad pulled me around he said no be there he said you'd want your mates to be there as well so um you know I'm, I'm glad I went and it was the same for the World Cup final like, it was one of those things I couldn't miss but kind of dreaded going a little bit because I feared the worst that if they lifted the trophy I'd be there to see it but I'd be in the stand um 
but then as well you've got the you've got the nerves that the girls have got but you're not you can't actively help mm. <laughs> so it's that it, that it must be what a coach feels all the time that you know you, you're not on the field you can't influence anything and I remember assistant coach Ali made and his kids were in the box and uh, little Finley he was only three at the time and all he wanted to do was watch Peppa Pig so I got him on my knee and I started watching that on my phone with him and I'm, I think I missed five of Anya's wickets <laughs> um, and I nearly threw little Finley off the balcony when we won it because I was up in arms but yeah it was it, I just remember the constant it was it was like a roller coaster of emotions that day because you're proud to see your girls out there. You're proud that the the women's game has brought twenty five thousand into a, a you know a Lord's final, um, but then at the same time you're not. I was in a dress that day. I wasn't in the training kit. I wasn't. Sure. And then we got invited into the dressing room at the end, and you felt like I was I was cheating a little bit because I was enjoying the celebrations but wasn't involved. And I remember um, our S and C coach Ian and the physio Susan said, "Have a picture with the trophy." And I said, "No." I said, "I'm not. I'll do that when I've won it. I'm not having it now." And you know, it was it was probably me being a little bit stubborn as well, and and um, probably being a bit aggravated. But I, I felt like I wanted to earn the right to have that picture. And 12 months later, you're back in the side. I mean, to what extent did that, that, that experience, that unusual experience that you're talking about there, influence your ability to get where you needed to be to make a contribution to the national side and, and to turn out again as you did last year in Leicestershire? Yeah, it's definitely given me some perspective. I think in, you know, the test match, obviously I was really disappointed to have missed out at Taunton and not playing the test match. But then I think to myself, it's always better to be 14th in the in the dugout than it is 15th back at home. So, um, you know, you always want to be involved and regardless of how the team doing it's it's nice to be in the environment and you obviously still get the opportunity to train and things like that when you're when you're involved and not playing luckily I've been I've been quite involved in the last 12 months and you know I went over to India and got told that I probably wouldn't play a game over there and ended up playing three 2020s which ironically might have just turned my white ball career around a little bit because I got an opportunity that I probably wouldn't have got if Georgia hadn't got injured and if they hadn't dropped Catherine Brunt for that game then it, you know, it might not have been me bowling that final over in, in Assam so but I think uh, again going back, I keep going back to the things that my dad tells me but he just says you know a year is a long time in professional sport and I think back to a year ago I, th- I think I'd just made that comeback game and then I think what's happened in that in the last 12 months I've probably doubled the amount of games that I've played for England in, in that time so um, I think it's just it goes back to that enjoyment level and enjoying it while you can and making sure that you you know you don't take anything for granted I know that's really cliche and everyone says it but <laughs> you know even this series which has been a really tough one for us as a team will bring something good something good will happen from this because you know we've got to get you know we've got to get better and we've got to improve and that I think again bigger picture it's it's perspective isn't it and it just shows where the women's game can go and people now are talking about us and talking you know maybe six seven years ago this wouldn't have happened if we'd have lost an Ashes series no one would have been bothered but yeah. we've managed to gain a little bit of momentum with fans and people do follow the game and it's in a way it's nice that we're getting a bit of criticism because then at least our efforts are being noticed huh. so sort of in a slightly masochistic way you, you, <laughs> can, you can enjoy it bring yeah. it on <laughs> yeah well I mean <laughs> it's probably like me fielding at, at um, Canterbury wasn't it, it was, I, at Chelmsford sorry I enjoyed it for probably the wrong reasons well it'd be memorable um, no <laughs> yeah. there's this interesting tension I think where it's good that we have, we have more conversations about mental health now and it's it's great but also there are these narratives that there are problems with it the way that it's talked about and one of them I think is that 
people often talk about their struggles, but they always feel compelled to kind of have the uptick at the end of the story. It's like, oh, this was the bad time I went through, and then this was my solution, and now I'm fine, yeah. which is bullshit because, like, anyone who has chronic mental health problems is not fine. They, they don't become fine. They, they manage it. They learn a way to manage it, and they go down and they come up again and it's ongoing you know it doesn't end there's no it's not cured you know it's not yeah. it's not a, a disease that you go in hospital for and get the treatment for when you're looking at it how do you look at um how you're going to manage that into the future and that you know whether that's an ongoing thing rather than you know something that you go cool done ticked off all good now yeah i think the what you say about that that cure i guess um for me it was a case of learning how to live with um the th- the thoughts that I had and how to manage them. I remember being at university and um, it wasn't for me university, you know, being away from home and not having money to, to do a big food shop and, you know, not I, I then didn't have the money to go out with my friends and things like that. So I remember... I remember speaking to my mum the first time and this is where the first the first time that I realised I struggled with mental health was my first year of university and um, I just sat in the car we were going to a cricket game I was going watching my brother play and I, I said to her I was studying psychology at the time and I said mum like, all these symptoms that I'm looking at in these books and these textbooks that I'm learning from is what I struggle with and she said she said funnily enough I was going to speak to you about this because I've noticed you're not yourself you know you don't you know and she said that my brother and my sister went through the same thing at uni so then I'm thinking all right well it must be a gene thing Mm. you know I I must it all runs in the family me Bobby and Jenny are quite similar and I remember when I finished university I remember thinking god that's it right I'm gonna get rid of this depression now and that'll be it and six well probably three months later I'm still I'm back at my mum and dad's I've not got university work to worry about and I'm why do I still feel like this and so that was something that I think or the starting point of when I realised that this might be something that is a long-term thing and I've got to learn how to deal with it. And I still say now, you know, I still have really bad phases. They're not as as continuous as they were back then. But I remember when um, I did my first season in the WNCL and they have the three-month break for the Big Bash, don't yeah. they? You don't play any cricket. It was just club cricket. And it got to the January and I, I think I'd not played a game for maybe a month and a half. And... Um, I, I rang my mum I said I'm coming home I, I want to come home I'm fed up with this and it was a week of me having a low time again and then you know you find you go back to all your strategies for what works and for me exercise is a really big thing if I'm exercising then I'm generally in a good place and or if I have a bad day a bit of exercise pulls me out of a bad place but you know it still goes on and I, you know I'd be lying if I said that in the last month of this Ashes series I've not thought about retiring or you know it's that those extreme measures that you go to that you think you know, it's it's probably a forever thing, but it's just learning how to manage it. In terms of the cricket side of the equation, like obviously we're talking about the the, the fallow period in your career, the WBBL seems like an interesting uh, two plot points on the, on the map. Fifteen, sixteen, it doesn't go well at the Brisbane Heat. Although clearly you developed some good friendships. I think I saw you at Wimbledon a couple of years ago. Which yeah, was with Ash, yeah, yeah. yeah. Was a, a teammate there, and then and then great mates with Jess Johnson as well from that experience. But then this time around, you go to the Perth Scorchers, you play under the tutelage of Meg Lanning, um, you gain this confidence from playing a lot of WBBL cricket that over you talk about, that final over where you defended three in a T20 against India, which I mean having the confidence just to put your hand up and saying to Heather, look, look give me that over yeah. um, to what extent has that Australian experience given you a bit more confidence with your bowling? Yeah, I mean I, I don't see that I mean, I know I didn't do as well as I wanted to for the heat but I think looking back I wasn't ready to go and play in that, I think right. I, I kind of saw it as an opportunity that I couldn't turn down and I think if I'd have been a bit braver I probably should have said no I'm not quite ready but mm. I still learnt a lot from it so I'm, I'm really glad that I went but I think 
the the way that I looked at the season with the Perth Scorchers was that I've got to be selfish. I've got to learn how to play white ball cricket because I'm so I was so far away from the England T20 stuff at that point that you know I thought what have I got to lose if I go over there and have a bad season then you know I'm no better off or no worse off but if I if I go and have a decent season and they see that my Yorkers are coming out well and or whatever it might be then you know I might have a chance and like I say it was probably through default that I ended up bowling that over in in India but the opportunity that I had in Australia and being one of the the main bowlers there and the death bowler it just it is just confidence and that's I think what we lack in women's cricket or certainly years ago we lacked was the opportunity to to play under pressure and it is an opportunity because it's when you do your most learning like I said this series that we're in at the minute it will we will learn so much from it but yeah that then allowed me to just like you say say to Heather you know I'll, I'll give it a go it might not it might not work but I'll give it a go so did you you enjoyed that spot up in Brisbane though because it, it, I think it, it's weird it's easy for us on the outside you can look at someone's record and say oh, I didn't have a great season must have had a miserable time but you might have been having a ball off the field you know yeah we don't know. well it was the first time as well that I've been away playing cricket with without an England team so I was out kind of on my own learning and you don't have the comfort of the coaches to say oh what's this why am I not doing this why am I not taking wickets and that it, it was a I remember actually towards the back end of that time we went straight to South Africa oh I might have had two days at home I came back from Brisbane did two days at home and Mark Robinson came in for the first time and I put a lot of pressure on that that um to the big bash then because I thought my selection would would count for that and then I'm thinking well, Rob, Mark Robinson's probably never even seen me bowl live so why am I so worried about it mm. but um no I did have a great time and I, I've, I think I said it in an interview before the ashes started but this this means a lot more now because you've got friends I, you know, Jess Jonathan, I lived with her for two months with the Heat and Nicole Bolton, I lived with her when I was at the Scorchers and played seasons with her and um, obviously had Meg as captain when I was with the Scorchers as well now. So, you know, there's a bit more chat at breakfast and, you know, you can say well done to Meg when she batted so well the other night and um, I think it just adds that, uh, like another dimension of rivalry, I guess. It's nice that you have the perspective to be able to pull back and, and appreciate cricket as a game, you know, that you happen to be playing rather than having it be dependent on the results you have. Yeah, and I think sometimes that's what you get sucked into. You, you see that, you know, it was a heavy defeat for us when Meg got those runs. But again, I, I think I saw Charles Dagnall say on Twitter, you know, it was it was great to watch. Yeah. Not as an England fan, obviously, but for the for the women's game, like I said, it was just a spectacle. And yeah. it just, it regardless of whether you, you we're nailing our skills as bowlers, she's still hitting the ball for six and she's still hitting it 75, 80 metres. And to me, that's just this good for the game. I've seen a few of your England teammates file past us while we're talking, which suggests that we're going to have to wrap it up pretty soon. But uh, in closing, uh, throwing forward, you're 28 later this year, Kate. I can't oh, believe it. Oh, don't say that. Uh, you're 28 this year. <laughs> I'm going backwards the, I, from I, now I, I think you're thinking you're like a young player on the side, but you're really not. You're in the second <sighs> half of your career by definition of your age. But that's not to try and pension you off either. Of course, hopefully you'll have plenty of cricket to go. You've done some commentary. Uh, you and Alex Hartley have been uh, revelations on the radio. <laughs> um, is that the future for you, or is there something else entirely outside of sport that might be, you know, keeping you interested professionally once you do decide, hopefully, many years into the future, to, to wind up your cricketing career? Um, oh, you just reminded me how old I am. Um, Sorry. <laughs> no, I think I, I think I would like to try the media afterwards. You know, yeah. I enjoy I enjoy the game. Like I said, it was my hobby when I was a kid, and I, I'm I'm the badger that watches the Test match, and I'm watching the big the blast every night, and I love the big bash when I was over in Oz because you know you get to see the, the guys play and stuff like that so I enjoy the game and I enjoy learning about it um, and I think for as long as I can I'll probably try and 
stick with it. I don't think I've got the coaching gene. I'm not sure I'm into that <laughs> or, or umpiring. I've not got the patience for that either. But um, yeah, I think you know if you, the game can open so many doors for you and it's given me some great opportunities and um, you know even when I wasn't in the Ashes squad uh, in Australia I still got the opportunity to do some work with TMS and, and do some um, big bash games where I got to go to the new Perth Stadium for yep. the first time so that was an unreal opportunity but I do I'm lucky that I stuck at university and I've got a degree to fall back on if mm. if needed and that's like I said it's in psychology and I remember I wrote in a who's who's you know the um, the little books that we get the who's who's cricketer one of the interviews was um, what would you be if you weren't a cricketer and um, I, I cocked it up a little bit. I put, um, I meant that I wanted to be a criminal psychologist or a forensic psychologist, and I just put a criminal or forensic psychologist. And my dad <laughs> rang me up and he said, Kate, no, we need to talk about this. He said, we can't go down that route. Well, maybe it'll be Mike the Psych, then it'll be Kate the Psych. Who knows? <laughs> maybe, we'll see. Maybe. We'll see. Uh, Kate Cross, uh, before, Jeff, got one more question? I do, I do. Um, no, I was just interested that you, you've got the, the, you know, the image of Kate as being the young player in the side. I feel like you've been playing for forever because you were, you were uh, twenty eleven. You were in that Ashes squad, weren't you? Yeah, you yeah. I got called up, didn't I? When you were, when you were a kid, um, and and sort of got to hang around and and you sort of watch how things went there. And then, I mean, twenty fourteen. Do, do you have this feeling that I mean that was such a great Test match, and yours was the defining performance in a narrow England win you've got the perfect symmetrical figures as well same figures in each innings like can you appreciate now that that's that's something that's always going to be an amazing point of your career like whatever else happens doesn't affect that you were there in a really important moment yeah and I I think when people ask me what was my you know my favorite part of my career or the you know that that question of what will you always remember and I, I think I'll always go back to that test match I think that over in India will be up there now as well because that was just a bit of mm. a um, I guess something that you're probably never going to do again as a bowler and certainly not a fast bowler in 2020 but um, yeah that I, well that test match I just remember my brother had played three seasons in Perth he'd been over at Midland Guildford playing and um, so I'd been Perth was the city that I'd visited and so it was quite a special city for me and then when we got to play the test match there and um I remember my brother said to me after we won it, I was just, I was so tired. I'd slept like three hours every night because I was, I just wasn't used to the adrenaline and the, the bowling every day. And um, he just said, just take yourself off, just grab a beer and go sit on the hill. And uh, ironically, I was there. I was texting. I turned my data on. I was being naughty. I'd like, it cost, probably cost me 50 quid to send that WhatsApp. But um, yeah, I was just sat there with a beer and I, that, I, that's one of my big memories from it as well. Like the cricket obviously was great, but you know, I just remember taking it all in at the end. And then I think to go and play in the Scorchers, that was then doubly special because I've had th- I've had those great memories at that ground and it'll probably be one of my favourite grounds until you know I can tell my kids about it and take hopefully well I can't take them to a test match now can I but <laughs> you know I'll hopefully be able to show them that one day let's hope so Kate Cross congratulations on uh, getting back into the England side thank and, you uh, very much uh, thanks for being part of our show and, and sharing your story thanks for no coming problem. on the final thanks week. for having me hi I'm Dave Warner and you're listening to the final word it is the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon as we say goodbye. And as we were taking a break, Ben Stokes has walked out back into the middle and has brought up his test century uh, with a reverse sweep of Roston Chase. There we go. Well, look, you, you want to make sure that like that shot's going to be replayed. You don't want it to be a little dinked single off the pads to mid-wicket. You, you want it to be something that looks good. So uh, totally understand that impulse. And pff, look, if, if I could play a reverse sweep, I'd be doing the same thing. 
I hope you enjoyed. I hope everybody enjoyed uh, our conversation with Kate Cross. She's a good egg, one of the fantastic people uh, in our sport. So thanks to her. Thanks to everyone for being involved on Patreon and Nerd Pledge. Uh, we're enjoying so much having our um, deep dives each week into the numbers. And we also love corresponding with our uh, patrons through that platform. So if you've joined up and we haven't got to your number yet, uh, hop on and have a conversation with us during the week. It's a, it's a great way for us to stay in touch with the Final Word community. And Jeff, as always, thanks to Bad Producer Productions, uh, Dave Collins who edits the podcast each week so superbly uh, Jay Mueller and Astrid Edwards who run the show behind the scenes uh, we're very proud members of the Bad Producer family if you would like to send a review or a rating our way on the podcast platforms that helps other people find the show or if you'd just like to do it the old fashioned way and recommend it to someone who might enjoy it then that will be more people to welcome into the warm and loving bosom of our cricket worldwide family I just had this sudden flash of like the Australian cricket family thing that you get in the, the corporate emails from CA and uh, even though I was being somewhat facetious, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm just caught in three minds here. Do I, do I feel nauseated? Do I, I mean, it's sort of, it's, it's true. We do have a, we do have a nice, a nice group, a nice community of people around us. And so maybe I can be sincere about it and not throw up. I, I don't know. It's hard to tell. I reckon you can. I reckon at this part of the show, you're entitled to be earnest. If you're still listening now after probably an hour and a half, then you're 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 you're, you're entitled to get this uh, this 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 jolt of sincerity from Jeff. Mm-hmm. You know what though? It's a good place to leave it. This has been the Final Word Weekend Edition. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week. I had to go about it, write it out.